Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Radical Ones. I am your producer, Phineas. Xander is out this week. He is doing the important work he does with his refugee organization, which is a topic that we'll cover on later episodes. It's an amazing organization, and there's a lot to talk about on that front. But in the meantime, we are going to use this as an opportunity to revisit some of our favorite episodes, and we're going to tackle the theme of criminal justice. This topic is obviously one of the major pillars of our show. We've had on so many great guests that have spoken to this issue from many different perspectives. Today is just a short sampling of that. I encourage you all to go back and listen to all of our episodes because it is a theme throughout the show. That being said, today you'll hear from three of our episodes. The first will be from Bianca Tylek. Bianca is a true force in this space, and she gives us a really important and insightful, really history lesson on how to think about the current carceral state and criminal justice system in America today and where it came from. From there, we spent some time with our friend Jason Flom discussing wrongful convictions and the sheer scale of the criminal justice system in the carceral state in America. And then we close out with the powerful story of Adnan Khan, who was imprisoned under something called the felony murder rule, and how he then dedicated his life while in prison to overturning that rule and was the first person released under that legislative change. An incredible story. We just give you a sampling of it today, but I encourage you to go back and listen to the entire episode. So again, these are just three of the many that we discuss on the show, but they're all very powerful and all very different. This is a topic that is massive in scale and needs to be thought about from a lot of different angles. And it's why we bring on guests that bring many different perspectives to the table. So without further ado, please enjoy this special episode. So prisons are inextricably tied to profiteering. In fact, that's you know, what the modern day prison was an extension of slavery. And so for those who may not understand what that means or why, you know, we say that, take the 13th Amendment. The 13th Amendment is the U- uh, to the U.S. Constitution is the amendment that uh, sought or has been framed as abolishing slavery. But the reality is, is that that amendment had an exception built into it um, that reads, accept as punishment for a crime, mm-hmm. uh, which is wild to think that in 2021, we still have an, our U.S. Constitution actually says that slavery is allowable so long as X condition is met. Totally. Right. The idea that there's any condition that suggests that slavery is now OK should really you know, worry people. But when, what that did was it was an actual concession to the South. Because the South did not want to lose its labor force, it was very intentional to maintain that labor force. And so what that did was immediately after the passage of the 13th Amendment, they started to create what are called black codes, right? And these were laws in the South meant to criminalize black life. These were laws that only applied to black folks in the South and criminalized things like not having a job, having debt, 
gambling, literally, I mean, sometimes being outside, right? Like at, at certain hours, right? Like there was so many things and these laws only applied to black folks. And it allowed the system to incarcerate black folks in the South and essentially say, well, now I'm going to label you, quote unquote, a criminal. And now I'm allowed to enslave you. Right. And in doing that, what that actually meant was that what we saw was from pre pre the 13th Amendment of the Civil War population in prison that was 99 percent white folks to, you know, within a decade after the Civil War to 99% of people in prison being black folks, mm. thanks to these black codes. And all of those folks were then leased out um, through a practice called convict leasing. And convict leasing um, was this practice where prisons and jails would essentially lease people who were convicted in their system, in their prisons and jails, back to corporations and other private sector players, and namely, actually, the very plantations that were forced to free people. Mm. And in some cases, you actually had the very people that had been freed from that plantation back working in chains through the convict leasing model back on those very same plantations. And that model was ironically actually even more profitable because what those plantations were doing was they were leasing people. Right. If somebody died, they would get a new person the next day with a lease contract with uh, the state or, or the county, they weren't required for the care of folks. They, there was no, you know, cost to sort of people's death, which is um, a remarkable thing to say. And so what that created was this system that allowed for our prison system to be entirely rooted again on creating labor for the South, for plantations and uh, for the private sector. And in fact, uh, a lot of coal mining, a lot of uh, railroad um, system was built uh, using that convict leasing model. And, you know, by the late 1880s, you had states like Alabama making three quarters of their state revenue off of convict leasing from the private sector. Wow. And that's what brings us all the way into today, right? And we continue to see that that exception continues to exist. Our governments continue to be subsidized by incarcerated people. I mean, take COVID, right, where we saw incarcerated people all over this country uh, working for pennies an hour to manufacture PPE that was needed like hand sanitizer and gowns and masks, totally. many of which like, didn't have access to that same type of protection, even though they were in some of the um, most dire uh, environments during uh, COVID and still are. So this idea of profiteering started at the very root of today's carceral system and, you know, has evolved in many, many, many ways in the century since, but, you know, still holds on to those deep roots uh, and many of those same tenants. And so today we're talking about wrongful convictions. And there's a bunch of things that are unjust and wrongfully put people in prison. But when we're talking about wrongful convictions, we're talking about something specific. Can you define what a wrongful conviction is and the ways you work within it? Yeah, it's pretty self-explanatory. I mean, we have, you know, let's look at it on the macro level, right? So we have 2.3 million people in prison in America, which is obscene and insane and impossible to even comprehend a number that big. Yeah. And the best estimates are that somewhere between four and 10% of those people are innocent, actually innocent of the crime for which they were convicted. So let's take a mid-case number, say it's around six or 7%. And then when you divide that by 2.3 million, you end up with hundreds of thousands of people who are wrongfully convicted in prison right now while we're sitting here in somewhere between 100 and 200,000 in a mid-case scenario 
sitting, languishing, suffering in prison cells in America while we're sitting here having this conversation. And a wrongful conviction, by definition, is a person who is wrongfully convicted is convicted of a crime that they did not commit. They factually, actually did not commit the crime, but they were convicted of it anyway. And there are a lot of reasons why it happened so frequently. But that's what a wrongful conviction is. It says something that we have as many innocent people in prison that most countries, uh, our size are slightly smaller, but per capita have, period, incarcerated. That's that's how out of whack our justice system is and how carceral it is. You know, I never heard it actually put that way. And it's probably a slight exaggeration. But, you know, when you look at the back, well, if you look at Japan, they won't Google it. It's OK. <laughs> Japan <laughs> Sounds great. So consider this, though. right? Japan has last I checked, they have about 130 million citizens, mm-hmm. people who live in Japan, and they have about 70,000 people in prison in the whole country. We've got double that of innocent people. Right. So what do we have, 300 and something, 320 million people in America, yeah. right? So They're like 40% of our population. And what we lock people up at 14 times the rate per capita that they do. Yeah. And there's no, there's, there's absolutely, there's no serious social scientist who can show any positive impact on society of locking people up en masse the way we do. And in fact, there are tremendous negative consequences. Some of them are obvious. Some of them are less obvious. Um, Some of them are short term, some of them are long term. But the consequences are devastating. And now here in the pandemic, it's even worse because, you know, can you imagine the only thing that could make the prison, you know, experience for an innocent person worse is to have COVID raging through the prisons, right? So it's like, it's enough to make you insane. But yeah, your point is well taken. The reason also I had you define it is we have all these other injustices within our justice system that makes you question kind of the value of, of like someone being guilty, the coercion of plea deals because of our cash bail system, which you've been a big part of, you know, fighting against is a good example of not what we're talking about today, but another example of people who may may find themselves behind bars for an incredible amount of time before conviction, you know, and forced to take plea deals or Maybe they end up free, but we have, I think, 500,000 people in prison pre-trial right now in the country as well. Right. Those, the, the, we have 500,000 people in jail. They're behind right. bars. Right, so right, it's right. semantics, right? But the fact is, you're absolutely right to point that out. It's between, you know, maybe it's between four and 500,000 people on any given night in jail in America who haven't been convicted of anything. They're just there because they don't have money to post bail. And that is patently insane. And it's also a violation. It's a direct violation of the Sixth and the Fourteenth Amendment, right? right? How can you even pretend that we have due process or equal protection when two different people get arrested for the same crime and one goes home because they have money in the bank? Yeah, they have money in the bank. And the other one rots in prison for or jail, which, by the way, jails, you know, it's interesting, right? Jail, most people think, I mean, jail is a more sort of benign concept than prison. Right. Right? Prison feels heavier. Jail sounds like Mayberry, right? Some guy in a, sleeping in his uh, rocking chair and, it, you know, and there's a guy in a cell. Right. Like, that's the way it's been portrayed in movies over the years. But jails, by and large, are more dangerous, dirtier, more deprivation, and much less of any of the things that can possibly provide a any sort of relief that exists in prisons, meaning outdoor exercise, yep. access to any kind of educational programs, or even any kind of structure, right? Because jails are transient. We heard a bit about your story and like how you came into this. If you're comfortable telling your story, both from the beginning on how you got involved in the system and then also like how you transitioned that experience into your, your work today. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, just quickly to, to again, establish the context that 
with a group of friends was to take a thousand dollars worth of weed from a person I didn't know in a fake, I guess, quote unquote, drug deal. And once he handed it to me, I was to run into a car and the driver would drive off. No guns, knives, weapons were to be used. The two people that were that knew this this gentleman, they said that since we know him and you don't know him, Adnan, you know, we're gonna say that you want to buy it from him. We're just setting up that you buying purchasing this weed, and then we'll act like we don't know what happened after you ate. Um, so that's what I agreed to um, impulsively. Immediately, I was 18 years old, and so because I didn't, neither of us had a car. They called up one of their friends to be the quote unquote the getaway driver. When this young man came down, he handed me the weed, and in the middle of this, when he handed to me my then co-defendant, the quote-unquote getaway driver, appeared to pull this young man out of the car, and it looked like to me that they were fighting in the middle of the road. It was at nighttime, and so I got out of the car, and I yelled, like, what are you doing? Like, I have the stuff. Like, get, what are you doing? Long story short, we, we, we leave. The next morning, I was arrested, and that's when I was taken into the interrogation room. I'm thinking that this is, oh, they got me for the weed or possession of, and this is when weed was illegal, um, in California, you know, oh, they got me for possession of weed. I don't know what they got me for. I'm thinking I'm going to do a couple of months. And, you know, I don't even know how long. I don't even have a concept of time. And when I got into the room, they, that's when the detective, whoever he was, he said that we are, um, you know, you're being charged with robbery and murder. And right when he said that, just, I just, it just didn't make sense. I didn't understand what he was. I, I didn't know someone had lost their life. Like, what are you talking about? Murder. And then that's when he told me that it appeared a young man was stabbed. And so that's when I learned about the felony murder rule that I was involved in the felony, which was the robbery. Right. And I'm equally guilty of the loss of life. Um, and like I said, I took full responsibility for what I did and remorse and guilt. I remember just crying for, I mean, it's, it's that in itself a traumatizing. And so for, for multiple reasons, just my involvement, right? Like the amends that I wanted to make, the apology, I, there was no place for that. But anyways, when I learned about the felony murder rule specifically, um, I knew that I, I was guilty. And I knew that when I was going to go to trial, that I was going to get found guilty because all they had to do was prove that I was guilty of an intent to commit a robbery. That's all it came down to. And that carried the 25 to life sentence. So eventually when I was went to trial, found guilty, but I always knew that even an appeal would not get me out of prison. Now, sure, there was a hope of ineffective of counsel or the court, you know, whatever. Uh, there was an error here. But the truth is, in the law, the court did not make an error. Like everything was right within the law. Yeah. So I knew that the only way for me to go home is do, do 25 years and try to get out from the parole board, which is still highly like unlikely, mm -hmm. or the law needed to change. Felony murder rule needs to be abolished or amended. Um, so that was always like, I even started researching when I was in county jail, like who's talking about this? Is there a way, I, I don't know how to change the law. Like, is there a way to do that? Right. Long story short, about 12 years into my incarceration, um, I get to a different facility where there's more people in the community, community-based organizers, uh, people who were working on legislation. What was the new facility? San Quentin. And then after that, it was a very methodical, meticulous process, step-by-step. Um, step. So two to three years later, uh, the bill passes. And by the way, during this time, we, we started our organization, Restore Justice. So from under that framework uh, or that organization, we're able to kind of like uplift this bill that ended up, you know, it's called the felony murder rule bill, um, but it was called Senate Bill 1437. And so we're working with uh, community, working with, you know, uh, trying to get this passed through the legislature. We're working with. Um, how, how, do, how does that work? So you propose for the bill to get to like the, the 
you know, to the governor's desk or is it something that is an amendment that people vote on? How, how did it, what, what was the channel for it to pass? The channel was the legislative process. So in California, we have, uh, we have 120 state legislators, um, which are 40 state senators, 80 mm-hmm. members. And so the process that we took that you're asking was what legislator is going to put their name on a bill called the felony murder rule. The language is so like, uh, scary, right? And so Nancy Skinner was a state legislator that put her name on the bill. That in itself took about what, what I said, six months, like officially, right, through the legislative cycle. When I say two to three years, I mean that it took us that long to work on it, organize around it, start, you know, from inception to, to end. Thank you for listening to Radical Ones. If you're looking for more content like this, you can head over and be a supporter on our Patreon, patreon.com slash Radical Ones. You can also follow us on social at Radical Ones Podcast. We're on Twitter and Instagram. I hope this finds you happy, healthy, and safe. Take care.